Good afternoon and welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. My name is Amy Blewett and I am the Events and Lectures Coordinator here. I'm delighted to introduce today's lunchtime lecture by Jonathan Jones, who joins us to discuss why he thinks the tailor by Moroni is one of the most revolutionary portraits and one of the best paintings that usually hangs in the National Gallery. Jonathan read history at Cambridge and has written on art for The Guardian since the 1990s. He is the author of two books on Renaissance art and civilization. The Lost Battles, Leonardo, Michelangelo, and the Artistic Jewel that Define the Renaissance, and The Loves of the Artists, Art and Passion in the Renaissance. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Jonathan Jones. Hi. Thank you very much for coming today. I'm delighted to talk about this painting. And I'm, first of all, I'm delighted that the Royal Academy has put on this wonderful exhibition of Giovanni Battista Moroni's work. Um, he's really one of the great sort of undiscovered geniuses of European art. And I've fallen in love with him over a period of several years in the National Gallery. It happens that we have a lot of his greatest paintings. So we have a very good selection of his paintings in the National Gallery. This is one of them. This is, most people seem to agree that it's his masterpiece. But there are other wonderful paintings in this exhibition which have only come from as far away as the National Gallery. And it's great how just by bringing them to the Royal Academy and also having tremendous loans from places like the Brera in Milan and from the Kunsthistorisches Museum in Vienna, we're able to see these wonderful things in the National Gallery which have a quite quiet, enigmatic presence and which might not be the most famous things in the National Gallery, but we're suddenly able to see what treasures they are. And this painting in particular, the tailor, I think it's one of the great portraits. It deserves to be one of the really famous, iconic portraits of the Renaissance and, to say the least, of the Renaissance. It certainly really, really deserves this moment in, in the sun that it's getting. Not today, obviously, not very sunny, but, but the sun of this exhibition, really, we can, we can suddenly realise this treasure, which, we, which, in fact, we've possessed since the 19th century. It was bought in 1862 for the National Gallery. Um, so this is one of our great treasured art treasures of Britain, in fact. Um, and I, as I say, I think it deserves to be one of the defining images of the Renaissance. And so what I want to talk about today is to... Let's talk about this painting as a defining image of the Renaissance. When we think of Renaissance art... In fact, if I say Renaissance art, you know, what, what images come into our head? It might be Botticelli's Venus, the Mona Lisa, Caravaggio, if we agree that he's a Renaissance artist a little bit later on. The last Renaissance artist, perhaps. Holbein, I don't know. The Ambassadors by Holbein is, I suppose, one of the great sort of defining images of the Renaissance. If we take this as a defining Renaissance portrait, what does it tell us? And let's start simply by looking at it. It's a work that does compel attention. It's a work with a, a mysterious, soulful, poetic, drawing-in quality. When you look at it, you are, of course, intensely engaged by the expression on the tailor's face. We only know him as the tailor. We don't know who he was. I think some people would argue that he's not even a tailor. Perhaps he's a man dressed as a tailor. But, but on the whole, I think most experts would agree that he, is, he does seem to be a tailor. He's looking back at us. That's the, the thing that first holds you when you look at this painting. It, it, it's his look, his, his return of your look. Particularly fascinating and ambiguous look that he's giving us. What is that look? It's intimate, I think. To me, he seems to know the person he's looking at. 
which is, makes it very, very captivating. I love, I have to say, I love this exhibition, but let me say that I fall in love with Moroni's paintings and paint, this, this and other paintings by Moroni. The Night with the Wounded Foot is another one that's in, the, in this show. In some ways, the perfect way to see a Moroni is not in a crowded exhibition. I, I'm really glad that this exhibition is crowded because it deserves to be. But in some ways, the way to see a Moroni is in an almost deserted old master collection at four o'clock on a rainy afternoon when not many people are there. And you, know, you're just, and you just come across these things. And, it's, and, and with Moroni, his paintings, it's almost like meeting a ghost, I think. There's something very special about them. Not only this one, but if you look at the other portraits in the, in, in the show and the ones that they still got in the National Gallery, I mean, I mean it, there's, a, there's a, a quiet reality to them. These people are there. The tailor, most of all. What is that look he's, he's giving us? As I say, to me, it feels intimate. And the intimacy comes to me. This man from the past, this man from the 16th century, painted in about, in about 1570. But this man from the past seems to be looking back at me. But is the look slightly... It's a kind of almost a challenging look. There's something challenging about it. Is it even slightly aggressive? Is he on his mettle in some way? And why? Why would that be? So there's a very charged quality to his expression. Another thing, I think, which we absorb straight away, which draws us to the painting and makes us love it, is the colour. This man is dressed in... If you look at other portraits by Moroni in the exhibition, a lot of them are men in black. And, of course, he's cutting a piece of black cloth Black was the most fashionable style for aristocrats, for people in, who were in high society. Black was something that emerged in the Renaissance. Basically, it's like minimalism today. You know, the most extreme form of conspicuous consumption is to have a minimalist house. And in the Renaissance, the most extreme form of conspicuous consumption was to, to have black clothes, not gay, colourful ones, because that really showed you were a cut above, you know, that you were a man of taste, discrimination. Women wore colourful clothes, but become fashionable for men to wear black. So, but he's not in black, of course. He's in these fantastic red pants. I'm not an expert on fashion or anything, by the way, or history of clothing, um, although I do think it's a very important part of the history of art and a very important part of Moroni. I hope people haven't come expecting a kind of a very, very detailed discussion of the history of clothes. But he has these fantastic pants, which are kind of, they're very regularly cut. They're, they're, they're slashed. They're bulging out. So they're bulging out, as you can see. And they're also, they've got these wonderful slashes. And if you've already seen the painting in the exhibition, you'd, you'd be aware how, how irregular the slashes are. They're kind of incredibly stylish and daring garment because it's deliberately got these rough slashes in it, right, right through it, as if it's strips, as if he's wearing sort of strips of cloth which hang together in these big bulbous kind of shorts. And we can't see his lower legs, of course, but they would probably be wearing stockings, I guess. But then there's his yellow top. Well, is it yellow or is it white? The colour is so subtle and so fascinating that I don't think you can actually tell if it's yellow. It's a sort of lemony white, I would call it. You know, it's, it's got that lemony quality and yet also it's sort of white. There are hints of lemons and pearls. It's exquisitely beautiful. And we could say, you know, if we were looking at it from our point of view, exquisitely, almost, you know, femininely beautiful because, because as I say, a knight at that time would wear black, but he's got this wonderful yellow or white pearly lemony thing. And he's also wearing a ring. If you look at the hand with the scissors, he does have a gold ring on his smallest finger. And so that tells us something, obviously, that he's not, a, he's a tailor, but he's not a poor tailor. He's a successful tailor. And of course, he's tailoring. This is the thing about the painting, which is incredibly rare. He's engaged in manual labor he's not a stonebreaker he's not a slave he's not a you know he's not a peasant he's he's an artisan 
He's a craftsman. He's somebody who, but he's, you know, he's not a gentleman. He's somebody who works with his hands, producing the beautiful clothes that the gentry will wear, that the rich will wear. Presumably a successful tailor because he seems to be, you can tell by his clothes and his ring that he's doing all right. He himself must also go to a fantastic barber. His hair is incredibly subtly cut. It's one of the things that make, I think, the painting very, very contemporary. He really could be our contemporary, you know, a dashing, you know, a dashing, obviously very intelligent, but he's got that, the hair is sort of, some places it's very short, subtle beard. He really does look like a kind of very stylish guy today that you'd see on the streets of London, I think. He looks a bit like one of the characters in the current series of Doctor Who, but I'll, I'll leave that aside. That, but that, it's that look, that, that look, that sensitivity, obviously. I mean, Moroni is an artist of immense sensitivity himself, but it also brings out immense sensitivity in everyone he paints. Or I would say every man he paints. Um, one thing that really struck me in this exhibition, which I hadn't known before, is how much more attention he gives to male faces than to female faces. There are obviously some fine portraits of women in the show, but he does tend to sort of dwell on their clothes, and their, their faces are a little bit not particularly, to me, individualised, except for one, where you have the, um, a young woman who's sort of kind of cocking her head in a rather sort of, again, like him, a kind of, you know, almost aggressive way, challenging way. And that's one, there's that one woman in the exhibition where I feel that I'm really engaging with a real person. But actually, he does seem to give a lot more passionate attention and poetic attention to the sort of the poetry of masculinity, which he, portraying soldiers, he brings out these, you know, he sets them among broken ruins. He might show one with a wounded foot, as he does. You know, he, he makes them vulnerable. He makes them, he loves their beards. He, gets, he, he shows the magnificent lines of their beards. Their silhouettes are kind of incredibly crumply and complex. So he has a kind of an ability to look at men with sensitivity and bring out the sensitivity of those men, which is one of the things that makes his art so haunting. He's also a magician of space. And I, now we get on to the Renaissance, what would the Renaissance be like? How would we understand the Renaissance if this was the most famous Renaissance painting? So, what do we think the Renaissance is? Perspective. One of the great cliches, the sort of, you know, it's become a great academic cliche. You, you know, the Renaissance, they invented perspective. That's what every textbook tells you. I think what, it, what they don't tell you is that every Renaissance artist used perspective in a different way. All, all the great Renaissance artists, once perspective was invented, you know, that it was understood, then it becomes... The cliché is that perspective is a way to show the world. It shows the world like a picture. It makes the world real. It gives space a reality, of course. But in fact, artists were, from the beginning, from the moment perspective started to be used in the 15th century, artists found poetic ways to use it, expressive ways to use it. If you look at Leonardo da Vinci's Adoration of the Magi, he uses perspective as a way of hanging together an almost infinite number of concepts and images which can somehow be given form through perspective. And by the time that Moroni was painting, he's painting almost after the Mannerist period when people started distorting perspective. The way Moroni uses space is incredibly subtle and it's one of the things, I'd say the, one of the reasons he's such a great portraitist and so important in the development of the portrait is he gives people their own space. He creates a space around people which is profoundly real and profoundly their own. So he uses the ability to create space, which by this time Renaissance art had taken to an extreme of scientific excellence. He uses that science, if you like, to create a space around people which is quiet and calm and allows them their own individuality, let's say, their own 
literally gives them their own space, as we would say. And you can see in this painting how he's done that with light. We don't see the wall of the shop. We don't see a kind of, you know, realistic depiction of the back wall of his shop with lots of, which might have shelves and bits of cloth or, you know, a tailor's shop. Instead, he's, he's, he's created an almost abstract grey and silvery space around this man, which is defined, of course, by light, by a soft, velvety white light coming in. That space around him isolates him, not in a bad way, but it gives him, you know, gives him his reality. It's a really important and um, not sufficiently observed thing about Renaissance portraits, Italian Renaissance painting in the 16th century, is that it actually makes people as big as they are. When you look at, I was just this morning looking at some Flemish portraits from the early 15th century, Van Eyck and people, you know, almost miniaturist paintings. What, what, what's really striking, what, what really happens at the time of Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo and Raphael is that people become the size that they are, or even bigger sometimes. And that kind of sense of the full presence of human beings is one of the great discoveries, I think, of the Italian Renaissance, and which then becomes fundamental to, to art ever after, through Rembrandt, Rubens, through to Gainsborough, thinking about portraitists now. So in this painting, that quite mysterious, almost spiritual light around him defines the space that he's in. And then, of course, he's behind the wooden desk. And this is, again, we get onto the sort of radical thing. Portraying work, portraying manual labour, really was not very common in the 16th century. Portraying a man at work. And there's almost, if you compare this with other paintings by Moroni, which you can see in the show, there's almost a joke going on, isn't there? Because you may have noticed it as well. Um, he, he often, sh he'll show other men, he shows aristocrats and knights stand and soldiers standing, um, he, he frames them in a space of classical masonry, column, broken columns, little alcoves, sometimes or, or a religious alcove. Whereas this one is like, you know, and the parapet, this sort of portrait behind a parapet, it's a classic Renaissance thing that you get in Titian, had sort of made one of the great Renaissance poses, you know, in his portrait of a man leaning on a parapet. So he's behind his de he's behind his work table. He's seen behind his work table. He's playing with the conventions of the art at that time, and his own, he's playing with his own conventions as well, because he does do these great noble paintings. But here, the man is behind a work table, and instead of a sword, he's got a huge pair of scissors, taking the, tra the traits of nobility, saying, well, what have we made them the traits of a, of a working man? of an artisan. Having said that, I think it's wrong. If we take this painting as, as the defining painting of the Renaissance, we say this is the great, you know, this is the Renaissance. Okay, I think we've reached some, a point where we can start to say a few things about the Renaissance judging from this painting. First of all, the Renaissance invented perspective, as we all know, and it invented a new kind of realism, a kind of human figuration, as we all know. But those things are not as we wrongly and sadly think so often, and as it seems, you know, when you look at textbooks, or just, just because the Renaissance, let's face it, the Renaissance happened, it began in the 15th century, it was all a long time ago, and it's been talked about ever since, it's been revered ever since, and so of course we have a rather stale view of it sometimes. And there's that thing that, you know, the perspective is just this, this stage that Western art went through. In fact, Renaissance perspective was an incredibly supple and subtle way, not just to sort of appropriate the world and make the world real, but also to give people reality, to give the human being reality. 
And so actually this painting takes us to the very heart of the Renaissance as it was defined by the Swiss historian Jacob Burckhardt in the 19th century. Jacob Burckhardt wrote the book that invented, if you like, invented the Renaissance in terms of you know, art history. He wrote a book called, in the 1860s, about the time that this painting was bought by the National Gallery, in fact, in the 1860s, there's this great book that comes out in German, The Civilization of the Renaissance in Italy, by Jacob Burckhardt. Burckhardt said that the Renaissance is the discovery of the world and of man. He saw the Renaissance as a great secular revolution, the beginning of the modern world, the moment when Western man, Western humanity, breaks with the communal ties and constrictions of the Middle Ages into this incredible freedom and incredible sense of that the human being is the greatest miracle of nature, that human beings, as Burkhart puts it, drawing on Renaissance thought, that, that, that we are miraculous beings who stand between angels and animals, that we are this incredibly special thing. And that, I think, is correct. I think that is what the Renaissance is fundamentally about. Burkhardt was writing in the 19th century. Modern historians of the Renaissance, including this exhibition, I think, tend to play up other factors. For example, Burkhardt thought that the Renaissance was a rebellion against Christianity. Nobody today would claim that in the way that he did. Having said that, you go to this exhibition, there's a lot of, there are altarpieces by Moroni. You know, if I was curating it, I'd put more portraits in and less altarpieces because the magic of Moroni clearly does lie in his portraits. And I don't think that's just from our perspective. I think that's where, the, where his magic does lie, although his religious art is very beautiful and subtle. But this thing of discovering the individual, how unconventional is this portrait? How unusual is this portrait? I think in terms of the Renaissance, it's very unusual in one way, in that it depicts a worker, a gentle worker, as I've called him. It's also incredibly typical of the Renaissance, because I think the Renaissance does, it's incredibly democratic. You look at Renaissance portraits, again and again, you see images of people who we can relate to just, just as people, just as somebody unequal to ourselves. You see that in portraits by Botticelli in the 15th century. You see it profoundly in Leonardo da Vinci's portraits of women. It's democratic in the sense that it can encompass, in fact, Renaissance art encompasses a very wide variety of kinds of people, a huge variety, I think, of, let's say, life possibilities. Leonardo, no one had really done it before so well, but Leon, you know, Leonardo introduced women into portraiture. He puts women at the heart of portraiture, and not just women as sort of sex objects, but women as sensitive, poetic beings. A portrait that shares this painting's humanity is Leonardo's portrait of Giovanna di Benci. Women have a strong role in Renaissance portraiture. And in fact, you do get a lot of, there are a lot of portraits, especially by the North Italian painters out of, you know, the school that he comes. They do paint doctors, they do paint humanists, they do paint lawyers, you know, they, they don't just paint the nobility, in fact. But now I want to get onto a more controversial interpretation of this painting. If we were looking at this painting as a typical Renaissance work, as, you know, the sort of defining masterpiece of the Renaissance, we could start by looking, again, at the scissors and the trousers or pantaloons. There is something that, to be absolutely honest, I only noticed today poking out from his pants. There's a little codpiece there 
I mean, obviously, there's a painting in this show, which is where there's a man who has a massive codpiece, one of the greatest, one of the most splendid of all painted codpieces, actually. <laughs> the two most grandiloquent codpieces in Renaissance art are now in London because there's Navagero's codpiece at this exhibition, which has got this amazing sort of realistic, massive red codpiece. And then there's also Henry VIII's codpiece in the Whitehall portrait in the National Portrait Gallery that you can compare it with, which is also immense. Although the Henry VIII's is said, said that that's not really very accurate, that one. Because this one has quite a small codpiece. <laughs> he has a, a little subtle codpiece. It's almost but that's interesting. Why is it like that? Why is it like that? Why has he got this little subtle codpiece which you don't even necessarily at first notice, which is kind of poking out? But there's something else about it. When you notice the codpiece, I think you can't help noticing how near it is to the scissors. And I think, you know, so what's going on? This adds another level of uh, drama and mystery that not only is Moroni quite clearly, I think, wants, he wants you to see that codpiece. He wants you to discover it because he could have hidden it behind the table. Instead, by putting it just above the table, of course, it's by putting it at the edge of a field of vision there, it's, it's actually saying it's important. And then by putting those scissors near it. Now, of course, we live in a post-Freudian age, and for us, you see a pair of scissors near a codpiece, you know, you're going to think about castration and stuff. Is that something that they would have thought about in the Renaissance? I mean, presumably, had they still, you know, sharp blades next to, next to your genitalia would have been as threatening then as now. You don't need Sigmund Freud to tell you that. So we could come back to the social interpretation about the worker, the gentle worker. Is this a self-portrait? I think it's a portrait of a real person who's not Moroni. But at the same time, is this, someone he, is this that intense gaze and the kind of intimacy of it because this is somebody he identifies with? Is Moroni like the tailor? Is the tailor like Moroni? I had a little image of them both. Earlier this year, I went to interview a contemporary artist in northern Italy, in, in Piedmont, not so far from the, the area in which Moroni worked. And I went to this amazing sort of art cafeteria at lunchtime and met the artist's dentist, who was like a local dentist. And he said, he's the greatest dentist in the area. And he was a fantastic character. And he looked just like one of the people from 16th century portraits. And, and, and meeting sort of the local at the cafeteria at lunchtime in this little Italian city, you had, you know, the dentist, the artist, the local people, you know, those local middle-class types all, all eating their very long lunch, which I think is great, you know. I think it's really important we should stay in the European com community so that we can fund Italy to carry on having that lifestyle on our behalf <laughs> and we can go and share it when we go on holiday. So I have this little image of, of the tailor and the painter, Moroni and this, and this man, you know, being big friends, big mates, um, sitting over their glass of red wine on the piazza in the evening, and maybe having a little joke about their, their patrons, the posh, rich aristocrats that they both work for, cutting the black cloth, painting the black cloth. And of course, when you look at Moroni's paintings, and this exhibition makes it fantastically clear, unbelievable array of clothes. I haven't even mentioned, of course, the ruffs, the rough collar and the rough laces, which which he paints with such magical precision and which is one of his great skills and which you see it in all, almost all his paintings. Even the women have huge ruffs. But all of that, that fashion, that shaping the person through fashion, that's what the tailor does, that's what Moroni does in a sense. They help to define people and make people. Clothes maketh the man and painting painteth the man, as it were. If it's a kind of self-portrait or a kind of empathetic portrait that somehow they're both comrades, they're both actually painters in the Renaissance. This painting in the Renaissance raised its status. Okay, another absolutely definitive thing about the Renaissance, if we're trying to read the Renaissance from this painting, definitive thing about the Renaissance is that the artist raises 
his status. I'm afraid it is his at that time, but you know, the, the status of the artist in Italy and then elsewhere totally changes. The artist had been a craftsman. If you're a painter in 1400, you were a craftsman, you were employed, you had a trade. It was like being a joiner or a mason. You, 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 know, you had a trade, you were hired to do a job, you did it. But by this time, artists like Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo had revolutionized the standing of the artist. Nobody thought Leonardo da Vinci was just a craftsman. And nobody was allowed to think that Michelangelo was just a craftsman. Leonardo proved that an artist can be a genius, a universal genius with more ideas and more brilliance of mind than any writer you know, or any intellectual, as the, as the intellectual was currently defined. And Michelangelo not only proved that with his work, but also dramatized it with his heroic life. So that, you know, after Michelangelo, there is this idea of the artist as genius. Albrecht Dürer in Germany also portrayed himself as almost a Christ-like figure, a messianic figure. And Raphael had become this great hero in Rome. But Moroni, we know it's pretty obvious Moroni wasn't one of those artists. He lived rather a more provincial life, if you like. He did not work in Florence or Rome. Rome was the place to work at this time, if you wanted to be... But the other, the other the place to work, of course, was Venice for him. I mean, he, he lived in the Veneto. He lived in the Venetian Empire. But he did not make it in Venice. He, was, he seems to have contented himself with working for sort of local elites in these sort of more provincial cities. So did he see himself as more trapped in the craftsman role so does he identify with the tailor that they're both, you know, crafts, they're both, they both have such subordinate social role? So it's, and is that where the anger is? Is that where the potential violence of the scissors come from? And also, do they feel a bit, is it like, you know, we're a bit castrated? The tailor's a bit castrated in his, his manhood is somehow a bit castrated. And perhaps Maroney's manhood is a bit castrated. Is it that? Maybe. So there, there is that that you can read into it, I think, seeing it. But to be more provocative, to be, well, actually, I probably haven't been that provocative so far, but to be provocative, to come back to the, the cod piece and then to look at the man's face and his lovely clothes and just the whole feeling of the painting. This is inc- to me, this is a, a deeply intimate work. There's, a, there's almost a secret to it. It has a work with a secret. What if this man is not just Moroni's friend? What if this man is Moroni's lover? I mean, what if these teasing sexual references down below combined with the very... I would, say very, that, that, I would say very intimate regard. Maybe that reflects a very intimate relationship between the painter and the tailor. And isn't there an incredible feeling for the man's beauty in the painting as well? Which actually I think you see. As I say, I think Moroni has a feeling for male beauty. I don't think he shows that much feeling for female beauty. He, shows, he has, a, has a feeling for male beauty. And this is another aspect of Renaissance art which perhaps this painting reveals and which has been covered up a bit. Because we tend to talk about the Renaissance so much today in terms of, oh, they're all religious, and they almost make it respectable. But Renaissance artists were, I'm going to plug my book, The Loves of the Artists, here, because this is kind of what it's about. There was a very strong idea in the Renaissance, in fact, that artists were great lovers, men of sensuality. This was part of the discovery of the artist as a genius. You know, they were constantly, I could tell you lots of great love stories about artists. I mean, the most, maybe the most famous one is about Raphael, who was so, in, he, he did a wonderful portrait of his mistress, La Fornarina, which is in the Palazzo Barberini in Rome. Um, you probably know it. But he, he, she's, you know, she's naked. She's, it's, it's a semi-nude portrait of, 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 and she is. We know that she's his lover because she wears an armband saying Raphael Urbinas. So it is his girlfriend, and she's his, as he makes very clear. 
and he's showing her off. You know, it's said Vasari said that uh, claimed Raphael died of an excess of lovemaking. Um, this is this is what was believed. Uh, he died very young, you know, uh, and it was believed that it was because he he had been exhausted from from sex and the doctors who should have given him restoratives instead bled him and that was the worst thing they could do because he actually just needed to recover and um and he died anyway so michelangelo wrote what is now quite rightly regarded you know for years people tried to muffle the the, the nature of michelangelo and of his his love poetry he wrote you know he wrote homosexual love poetry he wrote a lot of it he wrote it was very it's very it's very Explicit's the wrong word because he, he, he sees it in terms of Neoplatonism and so it's almost philosophical. It, it is great poetry, actually. But, you know, Michelangelo's love of the male nude is what it, you know, is a love of the male nude. And he put it in the public domain. He wrote, these, he wrote poems which, uh, you know, if anybody... He didn't disguise... He didn't actually disguise the nature of his passion for the male body. He made it quite clear that he found the, the male body the most beautiful thing in the universe. And he, you know, he had a passionate platonic love affair with a young man called Tommaso de Cavalieri. If you think about it, to come out in early 16th century Rome, which is basically what Michelangelo did, was a pretty brave thing to do, you know, because they, you could be burned for sodomy. But Michelangelo, through a combination of Neoplatonism and simply being Michelangelo, was able to just transcend all that. I could go on, but I think the Renaissance was, in Italy... And what makes, you know, we can talk and people do talk about the Northern Renaissance from Van Eyck to Dürer to Holbein, of course, you know, wonderful. But there is something special about the Italian Renaissance. There's something besides the fantastic food that draws us back to Italy. And it's the sensuality. The Italian Renaissance starts with the rediscovery of the Greek and Roman classics, the rediscovery of paganism, the realisation that the pagan authors had a profundity which preceded Christianity. And of course, some Renaissance scholars tried to equate the two, they worked very hard to equate the two, to show that, that, you know, that Plato was a kind of proto-Christian. But, but actually, what, in art, this manifested itself as a deeply sensual discovery of the world. What Burkott said, the discovery of the world and of man, absolutely. And it's an ecstatic discovery. This is what makes Renaissance art so beautiful. And in the end, this is a beautiful painting. It's a gorgeous painting that makes you glad to be alive. And I think that that love of the human being and love of particular human beings, not an abstract love, but a specific love, glows in Renaissance art. And it glows in this painting. So I think this painting takes us, if you like, into a sort of secret level of the Renaissance, an intimate level of the Renaissance, that the Renaissance really was a great experiment in living, an experiment which included... As I say, I think it included, it included some surprisingly modern and dangerous explorations of, of, of sexuality and of love. And this painting might be a painting of love. That might be what holds us to it. That might be what's so captivating about it. I can't prove that it is, of course, and nor does it need to be in order for it to be a great painting. But I'll leave you with that thought, and we'll go on to the questions. This might not only be a, 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 a sensitive painting, this might be a loving painting. Thank you. We do have time for some questions and I was just going to open it up first of all by asking, we've done a lot of interpretation for the past um, hour and do we have any sense of the interpretations of the tailor at the time that it was made? 
um, at the time that it was made? Well, it's not. I mean, the thing is that I, you know, I could quote Vasari on any number of artists, but not Moroni. He didn't write about Moroni. And so one of the things about northern art, when you look at the art of Florence and then of Rome, which is like, you know, the sort of the high, high road of the Italian Renaissance, it's very wordy. Florence was a really wordy city. So when you look at artists like Leonardo or Bronzino, Bronzino was a poet, the 16th century art, you know, there, there were constant there were reams of words. And Giorgio Vasari, who wrote The Lives of the Artists, was a Florentine, and he put the lives of artists into the public domain for the first time and said, you know, artists are fascinating, heroic characters, and we should be celebrating their lives. But in northern Italy and in Venice, Venice is a culture of the image, and, and northern Italy was much more just sort of imagistic, and, the, and you don't find as much literary stuff about artists. I mean, and so, no, I can't really say much about what they thought at the time about this painting. Can I sort of try and complete your little frolic uh, interpretation of this? <laughs> because if, if we buy you on the cod piece um, and the scissors and the intimacy of the gaze, but with a slight threat in the gaze, yeah. so does this not become a joke between your potential lovers that well, the, yeah. the, the, the subject is almost threatening with his scissors? Yeah. You know, be careful, you know, because... Um, uh, Exactly. If your interpretation is right, then um, the, the artist yeah. is completing the joke between I, them. Absolutely. It's, I, mean, I mean, the thing is that I had sort of, when I came and reviewed the exhibition a couple of weeks ago, a vivid sense of, you know, though I'd say I've written a book about this aspect of Renaissance, but Moroni's not in it. And I hadn't quite cottoned on before the degree to which he's obviously much more interested in men than women. I think I would really say that that's true. I think that's a fact about the way he paints. And I, and I thought this, well, that's an interesting view of this. Maybe that, maybe this is sort of, you know, a very, very, very intimate portrait that they're more than friends. I certainly think they must have been both friends at the least. But anyway, only really this morning I suddenly noticed the thing about the scissors and the copies. And you're right. Yeah. So what does that mean? Is it, is that, as you say, a private joke between them? Or, or is it even a tension? Or is it even a portrait of a relationship that's rather tense and which, of course, would be quite true to what we know about people like Caravaggio in their love lives. My daughter did her foundation year at the London School of Fashion. Uh, she's a textile designer. But for her to create her um, end-of-year outfit, it was a nightmare. Her course leader said to me, you know, she didn't do anything for three weeks before this show. Of course, the show was, had the most wonderful outfits, rather like this, you know, that he's wearing as well as, you know, very much high fashions and coats and things. But what I'm trying to say is that to make an outfit for your end-of-term show is uh, your whole career ahead of you, you see. But for this tailor here, probably making one outfit for somebody important in black could also be his whole career. It's a very, very difficult process, and you have to get it absolutely right. And, and people like that are ultra-perfectionists, and they muse about things a lot more before they go into action. Yeah, but, but that, absolutely. And <laughs> you, that, you don't sort yeah. of plan it all the time, you know. And the other thing I was going to say, I know he, he paints a lot of men, but, you know, a lot of homosexuals are more female. You know, they're more interested in the female, aren't they? Well, you know, well the Leonardo was, well, yeah. <coughs> He could very well be a man's man. He could, yeah. I mean, I mean I'm, you know, obviously I say it's all speculative. Um, yeah. You don't but know, think, it's all speculative, isn't yeah. it? So, I mean, I think, absolutely, and I think what you say about... Exactly, that, that, that obviously fashion is high art um, and, the paint, and, and if, if you see it as a kind of, almost like a self-portrait, almost like that, that, that if Moroni identifies with him, it's because they're both artists, it's then they're both working with colour. 
it's, best working with colour and shape to create beauty. And, and, and also, it's, it's hard work, yeah. It, it's hard work. And also, you know, the Queen, when she... Uh, uh, there was a programme about the Queen's designer. You know, she didn't want to be uh, like a fashion... She didn't want to be like someone in Vogue. Mm. She had to have a, an image created for her in her outfits and her handbags and her shoes that had to be her identity and and so that's the way they have to think you know and her fashion design said I'd love to have dressed her you know as a beautiful woman but oh no she had to have a position that was, that was quite different from somebody yeah. in Vogue. So, I, mean, I, mean, I, mean, I mean one thing I do think is that Renaissance artists are very free in the way they think I believe we wouldn't be looking at an artist like Moroni five centuries on if as some artists you know some of the art historians are right about the Renaissance like it's all the patron decides everything the artist works to a brief the artists were not, you know, they weren't, they didn't have the kind of individual freedom or self-expression that modern artists do. You know, I think that's sort of baloney. I think that Moro we, would, we would not be looking at Moroni. We would not be giving him this attention and this time. We would not find him interesting if he, for example, was someone who, you know, just did what the patron wanted and what, and just sort of, you know, clearly he is somebody with a poetic soul, with a with a point of view, with with ideas. Um, and, and anyway, that's why this is such a fascinating painting. Uh, what was the social position of a tailor in society did they have guilds i believe so yes you know as, as i say i'm not well okay i do claim i have written a couple of books about races, but i don't i haven't done a close social study of tailors but I, but yes he would have everybody had a guild i mean painters had guilds um anybody who was an art any kind of artisan anybody who was could be defined as a craftsman would be part of a guild of course so of course though he would be part of a guild absolutely but but clearly i mean yeah the painting it's i can only say what the the painting tells us that he's not of low status, that he's not like, you know, he's, he's got a ring, he's clearly somebody who's, he's an, he's an important man in the town, let's say. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned quite early on that you felt that there was far more interest in the male portraits and the female portraits. Um, the one where I found more interesting, one of the most interesting, the most depth of feeling was, for me, Lucrezia, the abbess. And is this, yeah. to confirm your theory, well, yeah. is this because she's past the age of sexuality, perhaps? In yeah, I, I mean, yes, I agree. Obviously, obviously, curators make choices. And, you know, the curator has chosen that work. I mean, perhaps. Uh, but, but yes, indeed, he seemed to, he's, she's a, a powerful character, but clearly his interest is not sexual. Mm. So, I mean, I, I'd say that's what I felt. I felt that the the frisson of eroticism is in the male portraits and yes. I think it's actually quite a, quite an important part of them and actually I feel slightly almost embarrassed because I've been in love with Moroni's paintings for quite a while and I'd only just realised it so what does that tell you about me? <laughs> it's um, a technique question can you um, say anything about the illusion of uh, realistic solidity particularly the area around the midriff that allows for that marvellous you know sweep into the belt so, so sorry the, just how realistic it is yes yeah. the, the solidity the yeah. illusion of a realistic solidity, yeah. Yeah. particularly in this portrait, and particularly the area around the midriff. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we have the pattern and the light and the perspective. Well, well absolutely. As, but uh, then there's a substance of paint itself. I mean, he defines form through light and colour. Um, and that, that was a really big... This is the really famous divide, actually, between Florentine art and Venetian art. Um, you know, that there's a famous thing where Michelangelo went with Vasari to look at a, a Titian's painting of Danai, in, in, Titian had done this fantastic nude in Rome, and Michelangelo went to look at it, and Vasari was with him, and, and he said, oh, Michelangelo praised it, of course, in the presence of the artist, but afterwards, on the way home, he said to me, Titian would be a really good artist if only he could draw, <laughs> because the Florentine theory is that you draw first, and we're in the Royal Academy, which is an academy of art, the academies of art and teaching drawing, that drawing is the first principle of art. This is something that was 
I think, pretty basic to the Royal Academy in the 18th century, and it starts in the Florentine Renaissance and goes through Raphael, that drawing and design, and you give volume and form, first of all, through line and, and through the calculation of perspective. Whereas Venetian painting, it's true, does it all through colour. Titian defines everything through light and colour and paints straight on the canvas. And when, when Titian painted so your portrait, it, you know, it's, it seems that he would have literally been painting in front of you, just like Lucian Freud or somebody. That's definitely happening in Moroni's, in this painting. You know, if you look at it, all those, that fantastic, the fantastic complexity of, as you say, of the, the solidity of the belt, the way it comes forward, the, the solidity of all the little buttons. But that is all done through light. It's not, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's literally, he's not, he's not doing a shape and then filling it in. He's, he's painting the light. So, so the light creates the man and creates the solidity. I'm interested in where the adjective, the gentle worker, comes in. We talked about the menace of the scissors, and he, he has a slightly, we'll discuss the look, what type of look it is. But um, who coined the expression, the gentle? Well, it was me, oh, and I was asked for a title. <laughs> what I was thinking, well, first of all, that he's giving this man the obvious, you know, the obvious sort of maybe... Maybe I didn't say the obvious thing about the painting, which is that he's, he's taking a, you know, an artisan, uh, a working man, and he's giving him the, sort of the same attention that he would give to a gentleman, to an aristocrat. And so you know, there's a gentility to it. Um, but also, I wanted to, to suggest this uh, sensitivity, this deep sensitivity that's not only coming from Moroni, but also coming from the man. And, and this sense of um, intimacy as well. And so it leads us perhaps into the other more speculative things that I've suggested. I agree with you about him being more interested in the, the men than the women, but I also had a sense perhaps that the women were uncomfortable with him, Moroni. Did, That's did interesting. you feel that? Well, yeah. I mean, I mean if, we, if we see these paintings as... Well, this, this painting, we can see that it's a very direct engagement with the person who's painting. So, so yes, you can imagine that the women, he found it harder to engage in the same way with the women, that, as you say, that the women might be more reserved, colder with him. That's an interesting, very interesting. Of course, maybe that's, that might be a gift he didn't have, as it were, as a, whereas some artists, I mean, the fame, obviously the most famous example of an artist who had a rapport with a female sitter is Leonardo da Vinci, you know, and the stories where he was painting the Mona Lisa, he gets music, he has musicians and jesters and he tells a joke, you know, and he makes elegant conversation with her and he gets her on her ease and that's what Vasari says and so, you know, but, but, but obviously um, Titian was able to do that as well. Is he Jewish? Because of the scissors, just the, the snip? I've no idea. It's an interesting thought, it's a really interesting thought, I've no idea. Yeah, yeah, I can see what you mean actually. I can absolutely see what you mean. Yeah, I can... I, I totally, yeah, I totally, I totally see what you mean, but I, I've, I've no way of verifying that. Um, it's a really interesting thought. Yeah, see, yeah, yeah, I could. I don't know. Yeah, I think you're right. Okay, yeah, he does look slightly. Yes, is is he? Could he? Is he slightly? Is he Jewish? Is, there is his his complexion is quite maybe not um, Anglo-Saxon. Why do you think he is undiscovered after so many hundreds of years? Why why is it that he's not broken through before? Well, he's very subtle, really. I think he's a, he's a, he's a subtle, quiet artist. He wasn't... It goes, you could, it, it goes back to the 16th century. He wasn't a star in his lifetime. He wasn't a star on the world stage. Uh, artistic celebrity was invented in the Renaissance. It wasn't invented by Tracy Amin. It was invented by Michelangelo. Um, and even before Michelangelo, Leonardo da, Vin Leonardo da Vinci was an artistic celebrity. Um, you know, I mean, he was so famous that the king of France eventually just invited him to come and live in a chateau in the Loire Valley, and that's where he died, in the Loire Valley, and he didn't even have to do any work for the King of France because he was Leonardo da Vinci. Um, Michelangelo 
became you know, a megastar. In, in Venice, if Moroni had gone to Venice, if he'd, if he, the way for Moroni from northern Italy, from the Veneto region, the way for him to have been a star would have been to go to Venice and to, to make it in Venice. But this wasn't easy. It was very competitive. It was very competitive. That's the other thing about the Renaissance. It's extremely competitive uh, and rivalrous. Um, in fact, that, my first of the two paperbacks I've written, the first one is actually about the rivalry between Leonardo and Michelangelo and how incredibly kind of almost violent and vicious it was. And in Venice, you had Titian, who was an artistic god, and you had Tintoretto and Veronese were able to come in and to make, make out their own artistic identities. But there are a lot of artists who didn't quite... A few of these North European artists who don't become stars in Venice. Lorenzo Lotto is another wonderful, wonderful, absolutely, you know, really one of the greatest portrait painters of all time, just like Moroni is. Lotto did do, go to Venice and do some work, but he didn't really make it in Venice. And most of his career is spent outside Venice. Um, and so if you didn't make it in those centers, just like today, basically, if you didn't sort of, you know, make it in what we now call the art world, but luckily they didn't have a, such an awful moronic word for it in those days. But if you didn't get that recognition, and of course Vasari, as they say, did not include him in the lives of the artists. So basically that lack of fame goes back to his lifetime, which is strange, isn't it? That the Renaissance, because the, Rena the Renaissance defined the Renaissance. I mean, you know, they had stars, they had the star system, they had Vasari, and by and large, the artists who were stars then, are stars now. Thank you very much. Jonathan Jones for an excellent lecture.